Yeah, I, I think our general message is that uh, you can do anything you want, and what you're listening to right now means nothing. So don't don't even pay attention to us because we have no. <laughs> <laughs> we That's actually why... made this podcast so that we could figure out how everything works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this this podcast is just so that we can hear ourselves talk later on and think we're cool. I mean, I, I, that's why. Exactly. I exactly. I'm, I'm with you there, Michael. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real made-up things. I'm your host, Emery Glass, and today we'll be discussing ways you can create your very own interesting characters with evocative story arcs. Joining me today are Red, Chris, and none other than New York Times bestselling author, Michael J. Sullivan. Let's all introduce ourselves, starting with Red. Hello, I'm Red. I am the Senior Department Director of Editing here at World Building Magazine. Uh, I've got uh, you know a bit of experience editing a lot of the works from the magazine here, as well as a, a couple uh, things on the back burner out there that haven't quite been published yet. Um, I'm a huge movie buff, so I like to think that I know characters a little bit. Um, and uh, Emery has asked us to list our top three favorite characters too here, and I love that, Emery. <laughs> um, but boy, top three favorite characters. I'm gonna have to go with uh, person of interests, John Reese. Um, the Artem Artemis Fowl's eponymous Artemis Fowl and Kubo and the Two Strings, uh, Monkey. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm a regular guest on the podcast for some reason, and I teach um, world building and Dungeons and Dragons to kids at a nonprofit. Um, and my favorite characters, um, just for simplicity's sake, because it would probably take me too long to parse through every character, but I'll stick with three from the same world uh, from Forgotten Realms. Uh, Faron, Mizrim, uh, Drow, Gromph, Bainray, and Artemis Entreri. Probably some of my, my favorite characters of all time. Chris, I'll try not to ask you to spell those for us. <laughs> <laughs> right. I am Emery, a dark fantasy writer and artist. I write 33 Tales of War for the magazine, so it's not really surprising that most of my experience with creating characters comes from writing. Um, my top three favorite characters are Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, Marjorie Tyrell from Game of Thrones, and Elphaba from Wicked. Okay, so I'm Michael J. Sullivan. They already told you everything probably you need to know about me, except that I write science fiction and fantasy. Uh, as far as characters are concerned, uh, I'm going to be a little bit more classic than the rest of you. I would actually go with like Sherlock Holmes and Robin Hood, and and for for a very you know specific one, I'm probably with Nick Andros from The Stand. Oh, okay, yeah, those are some excellent choices. I just love Sherlock Holmes goes on forever. Everyone loves that one. It just you know, and everyone does versions of it. All right, so our first topic, I guess, shall be. Uh, Mary Sue's and Gary Stews. What are they? Why are they less than desirable? And what can you do to avoid them? So I, I guess I can start a little bit from it. Um, especially with working with children, it's a very natural inclination for them to make just absolutely perfect characters that can do no wrong and destroy the entire world and are also nine years old and, and everything fun in that realm. So 
um, just in terms of defining them, Mary Sue and Gary Stewart are generally unrealistic characters um, in, in the sense that they are all powerful and have no flaws and they're perfect and beautiful and everything about them is great. Doesn't it generally also go along the lines of they, they think it's like the author personified in the story? Oftentimes, yeah. Yeah, I think the the best way to avoid or to, I guess, heal a character that suffers from being too much of a Sue is to have a decent reason for why they have the traits or the powers or whatever that they have and not just giving it to them because it sounds cool. Yeah, character flaws are a super, uh, super important uh, way to avoid this too. If your characters don't have any flaws, then they're just going to be the flattest thing on planet Earth. And boy, that's a uh, that's, uh, that's a problem uh, when it comes to editing. Sometimes you'll occasionally, you know, be editing a piece and you find characters in there that you're like, "What is like this character has no reason to just be on this page uh, because they can already single-handedly handle everything here." <laughs> Um, but like, if you can find ways to add interesting flaws, that'll help balance out some of those other traits too, that we've, uh, that we've kind of mentioned there, they're having that'll already bring in a lot more three-dimensionality to a lot of these characters that can seem flat. I personally think that the, the, like character that has no problems is incredibly boring to write. Oh, so, absolutely. I mean, I would just naturally be interested in putting in some problems just so that I can write about something. I mean, you have to have some internal dialogue. And if the person's always, you know, perfect and can solve every problem, it's like, you got nothing to work with there. It's just boring. Yeah. I'd also caution to, I do agree um, overall read that flaws are a good way to avoid it. Um, and this might not even be an issue for, for like more practiced writers or something like that. But I run into it a lot with the kids is they'll give, I'll explain the concept of character flaws and whatnot to them. And their initial intuition is to give them a flaw that's not actually a flaw, you know, if that makes sense. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, my character is just so beautiful that, like, everyone loves them and, and they really hate it. And that's not, like, <laughs> a real workable flaw, you know? So how, how old are these kids? It ranges from six years old to 12 years old. So probably not the audience for having them read George R. R. Martin, huh? <laughs> not quite yet. Because <laughs> that would kind of solve the problem. Exactly. I mean, all you got to do is have have your your first assignment for these kids be you may write only characters that are horribly flawed, and then you can even have a list of you know multiple choice. You know, it's like can <laughs> only murder people is is you know sex you'll deviant. You know, you get some really good stuff going, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> six years old might be a bit, a bit young. Just a little bit. And I, I the interesting thing too is is like. Um, if you want to see a, like a super good example of this with, with like probably the shortest amount of time possible, uh, I'm going to actually reference you to one of the characters I picked. Artemis Fowl on the page is phenomenal uh, as a character because he's got a lot of like super good traits going for him, but he also has some, some pretty crazy flaws uh, in the way that he operates. And he knows these flaws are, are a problem, especially in the eyes of more morally white characters in the series. Uh, but if you go and you watch the Disney uh, film that sadly released earlier this year, um, boy, uh, they basically took apart everything that made that character three-dimensional. And that's one of the things that makes that movie so painfully boring to watch. Uh, <laughs> they just, they stripped that character of all the stuff 
that made him really fun and engaging to follow around. And so your experience is incredibly boring because they turned him into a character that has just got no depth. I think a lot of the best characters are the ones that are barely functional as human beings, but they're able to somehow overcome that and still, you know, succeed at what they're trying to do. But which is why Sherlock Holmes is one of the better ones. I mean, the man is practically maniacal sociopath and he's he's strung out on drugs, but still he's actually able to do functional things, which is, it's one of those things where you have a character who, you know, they're, they're, when I think of like Deadwood, if you've ever seen the television or the Uh, series, And you have uh, Schwizem, who is this person who's just horrible. I mean, he's a terrible, terrible person. And it's not until the enemy becomes worse than him that you suddenly find him to be a hero, which is he doesn't change, but your attitude toward the character changes, which makes him so much more interesting person to come off the off the screen to you. So I, I, I tend to feel that if you have a character who's just, you know, problematic in every other form of life, except in this situation, it becomes much more interesting and compelling. The other thing I'd like to bring up with regards to why it's a good idea to give your character flaws is because if they're so good at everything that nothing can take them down, you don't have any stakes, which makes the story boring because nothing should be a problem for them. Um, It's like, uh, I think, Screen Rants on YouTube where they say super easy, barely an inconvenience. (laughs) There's, there's no reason for them to struggle. There's no reason for them to have trouble doing things. They're not going to learn anything because they're, they're, they're unbeatable. There's nothing that can stop them. Do you, do you remember the television show Heroes? Oh, yeah. Yep. And you remember how the one person kept gaining more and more power? Yeah. And he got to a point where, well, there's nothing you can do. This person is like God. You can't do anything to stop him. And that, that's kind of like when that, that whole storyline just started to fall apart is when the oh, characters yeah. became so powerful like she's saying, I mean, we, we just have no reason. There's no conflict anymore. There's no tension. Yeah. And boy, uh, yeah, that's a fascinating problem to, to have. Uh, yeah. Siler is starts out as a really fascinating character, uh, but you're absolutely right. As the show goes on, he, he just kind of becomes uh, more and more of a, a flat thing. And, and I'm sure the writers thought they were making him deeper that way. They were like, Oh, let's give him some options and stuff like that. And it's like, no, the exact opposite. I always felt they didn't even expect it to be picked up again. So it's like, what the heck? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're writing those, you're like, well, maybe we won't even be picked up next season. So let's let's go all out. It's an unfortunate reality of uh, sort of the media industry in terms of writing long-standing stories. But it is good advice, at least for people writing novels or even making really really long Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, for instance. Um, being careful about power creep in your your story is actually really important because um, like everyone just pointed out, it can completely destroy the tension and just put things on like ridiculous levels. And um, this ties into your, your character because they're usually going to be the ones that are uh, victims of this power creep, so to speak in your world. Yeah. One of the things that I had when I was writing my series is I have a character who develops magic. It's like the only one who has magic, but as that, as that progresses, she becomes more and more powerful. But so what I had to do was there had to be a check on that. So as she gets more powerful, there is something that prevents, there's always something that prevents her from doing anything. I have a a super great warrior, but he never gets a chance to shine. You have this great uh, sorceress, but she never gets, because she's limited because there's something that's counteracting her. So you never get to see them do what they say they can do. And you know they can do until the last book and then in the at the last part of the last book that gives everyone a chance to do what you've been promising 
the, the reader for so long that you finally get to see the fighter go all out. You finally get to see the sorceress and all the magnificent power she has. And I think you need to rein that in through the majority of the book to build suspense and anticipation. And then at the end of the book, you do have to let the reader have that fun. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to set up expectations, you definitely have to f fulfill them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, that just, that's a really phenomenal example, though, of some of the fun stuff that you can pull off by making uh, some slightly more in-depth characters. Um, I think another example that I absolutely love to death that I'm, I'm weirdly reminded of, uh, of a, like a cool trick that you can pull off is uh, the characters in The Prestige, the, the movie The Prestige by Christopher Nolan. Um, this is kind of light spoilers, I guess. So sorry for anyone who has kind of an seen old it. movie. Yeah, it's it's been out there a while, and if you haven't seen it, go see it. I'm not going to spoil anything too crazy. But in the uh, the very end of the movie, uh, well, I guess I should explain this first for those of you who haven't seen it. The movie follows two magicians who are trying to constantly one up one another. Uh, it's a lot deeper than that. I just don't want to spoil what makes it so deep. But anywho, at the end of the movie, uh, one of the two magicians is uh, is chatting with the other, and he says. Um, you don't really understand why we were doing this and uh, why we were we were trying to one-up each other. Because uh, one of the guys has uh, basically has ruined the other magician's life in this competition of sorts. They've both become so, so absorbed in trying to one-up each other that their external relationships have fallen apart. Um, and at the very end, he says, we did the, I did this because uh of the look on people's faces you know for just a moment i could make them wonder that the world was better than the rotten place that it is uh and i'm paraphrasing here uh but like it was super deep and it kind of feels out of left field in a way when that moment first happens because you're like well no you guys were just absorbed in trying to show up each other but when you really kind of look back on it uh you you see that character motivation kind of always hidden in there um and this is part of just Christopher Nolan being a phenomenal storyteller, I think. But uh, this just is one of many examples, just like uh, Michael had just given us too. Another really fun thing that you can do with giving characters who, uh, depth is you can pull some of these 180s out of nowhere that still feel very natural. Uh, and it, it becomes something much more exciting for your readers and, and your, uh, your, your fellow players and stuff like that to experience that. Um, to see that moment where you're where the light bulb comes on and they're like, man, this is like, this is a really cool character and something that's going to stick with me. Um, I wanted to circle back to, to something that Chris said about how, um, you know, younger folk who are writing for the first time or making uh, characters for the first time tend to give flaws that aren't actually flaws um, and that are just... Uh, uh, traits, positive traits masquerading as a flaw. Um, but there's also something to be said for things that aren't really flaws that are being used as flaws. Um, like I'm thinking particularly dark fantasy and horror and all of that kind of has a little bit of a problem with turning things like um, mental illnesses into flaws when that in itself isn't really the flaw. It's like what else they're doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's actually uh, something that's kind of on a on a point to all its own in a little bit of, uh, of, of a way because there are uh, I've, uh, I've I've spoken to a couple uh, writers before who have had flat characters and yeah you ask them to put a flaw to them and they do do something like that where they just kind of write you know character has depression on the page and you're just like yeah but that, like the problem itself also has to be 
somewhat deeper than that. And and that boils back to, uh, you know, the whole idea of, uh, of what I just hope was filling in your gap there, Emery, um, that like, just cause the character has depression doesn't really mean a whole lot. It's what they have to do to, to grapple with that and whether or not they actually have the capability to do so. Um, and if they don't, what they're trying to do in order to gain that capability, um, to sort of pull two examples together. Um, I feel like, uh, one of the best iterations of Sherlock Holmes that I've seen, uh, is from, uh, CBS's elementary, um, where they took the Sherlock Holmes character and, uh, it's a modernization of Sherlock Holmes. Um, but like he has like very well-defined character arcs throughout the series that fit the, the narratives from the books very well. Um, uh, the whole idea of uh, it makes him a heroin addict uh, and just sort of the ways that he has to come to terms with his life post uh, rehab and stuff like that. Um, and it's watching the things he does, his confidence at moments, uh, his lack of confidence at moments and his ability to stay sober that are the fascinating things. Uh, Cause it's not like I would say that his flaw is that he has an addiction. His flaw is not knowing exactly how to handle that. Uh, not being the smartest, uh, you know, uh, recovering addict in the room in a way. Uh, and it's really cool to see that develop because of that. I, I think that, well, take the classic flaw of all time, Achilles heel. Um, it's not how he deals with it. It's the fact that how his enemies take advantage. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's a, so, that's a I mean, one. I have a friend named Jeff Miller who, who writes, uh, you know, mystery thrillers and he had a character and it's a woman who has anorexia and she rarely ever eats and it's not a problem she's an fbi agent so it's not generally a flaw necessarily except that when she encounters you know the bad guy in the story that person takes advantage of it and she's like she's chasing after a, a, a perp but she she runs out of energy practically passes out because she doesn't have enough food and this person actually you know uses that against her so it's like if if you're if you're taking a limitation that a person has and you're using it as a basis of how to defeat them, I mean kryptonite, another good example, right? I mean, it's if it's not around, Superman has no flaws. But if you have that, then you can use that against him. And I think that's kind of what defines a flaw for the most part, for as far as a plot is concerned. Uh, uh, if if you have a, you can have an awful person. Is that a flaw? I'm not sure, but it's definitely a flaw if the enemy uses it against you. Yeah, the the key here with making interesting flaws, um, like you said, Red, where if someone has a flat character and they're just like, oh, they're, their X is their flaw, but it never comes up, they're still flat. Um, the key is conflict and struggle. Uh, whether or not they're the one struggling with their flaw, like in the instance of the heroin addict, or if it's someone else who is forcing struggle upon them, like an enemy using their weakness against them, um, it it needs to come up, basically. Their flaw has to come up in some meaningful way in the story, um, and it, it needs to create tension and struggle, uh, essentially. Right, I think I, I think I might have been uh, using the word flaw a little too literally. I was thinking like being greedy is a flaw or being aggressive is a flaw or something like that. Right, but, um, so those are flaws, but to be a good flaw in the sense of like a useful flaw for storytelling purposes or for making a good character, um, it needs to be 
I guess I'll use the word an active flaw rather than a passive flaw. It needs to be something that's relevant and happening to the character um, so that you understand that they are dealing with it. Because if, um, you know, if the character was anorexic and it just literally never got brought up again in the story, that would fade into the background and essentially be nothing information and not useful at all for exploring the story or the character. Yeah, and this kind of lends itself too uh, to the idea that uh, you shouldn't uh, have the problem solved uh, too much externally. Um, and what I mean by that is um, you get a lot of characters who come in like pairs and stuff like that. And so you end up with a lot of characters who, uh, like Sherlock Holmes and Watson, for instance, uh, I'm going to jump back to elementary again here briefly. Uh, the show wouldn't be nearly as compelling. The characters wouldn't be as cool to me uh, if, you know, Watson, uh, who starts off the show as, uh, as, Holmes' uh, sober companion, uh, like it wouldn't be nearly as compelling if Watson was somehow able to just constantly remind Sherlock, you know, of of how to be sober. Like if the problem is always solved by an external character, then then that flaw is still very uh, again flat too. And so, like these are all things that we've mentioned in the past couple of minutes that really need to be taken into consideration and in making sure that that flaw is as deep as the characters are. Um, which kind of you know raises an interesting question too of, of thinking of uh, you know other uh, inf- uh, very famous pairings out there uh, and and how they've assisted each other. You know you get like uh, the, uh, listed here because uh, Emery's just got some wonderful episode notes for us. Uh, I see you've got Frodo and Sam mentioned here. Um, this is kind of a, a reversal on what I said a little bit, where uh, there Frodo has some serious flaws in his own right where sam is there to help fill it in but ultimately choices have to be made by the characters suffering from that flaw uh, because we can't make decisions for other people Uh, that's just not how people work Um, we can pull strings all we want i guess uh, you know to put on a very dark and very extreme side but ultimately most decisions are are going to be most compelling when it's made by the characters themselves and so we see frodo still at least actively struggling uh to to overcome uh temptation things like that and sam helps pull the weight a little um but uh yeah again i think uh there's a lot of considerations to take in into this when you're uh thinking about ways to make sure that that flaw is very three-dimensional too well when you're talking about three i kind of think of it like three-dimensional chess where you have different levels so if you're starting off with a character like frodo who has this you know established problem he's facing but then you have another problem which is with the character so there's one level which is the surface level that he's actually trying to achieve you know traveling with this ring is going to deliver and then you also have his internal problems that he's actually facing the possibility of using the ring and then you have you know maybe other deeper issues where he maybe doesn't feel that he is even capable of doing this at all and there's very and then of course he has another level where he's talking about you know he doesn't want to involve other people because he doesn't want the guilt of their lives so you have multiple Mm -hmm. levels within the character that are brought on not necessarily by flaws but necessarily by their own personal uh personality and how they react to things and what their values and and ethics are and all those are layered that that drop in at different parts of the story and that's kind of what gives not only characters but stories depth absolutely i want to i guess semi really well it is related um flaws when you're writing them i personally don't like it when it's almost like 
I don't know, a board game where you get to a certain point and then, okay, this flaw is fixed and it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> and it never becomes a problem ever again. Like that's not yeah. how people work. Like you don't just magically get rid of a flaw, like after reaching, you know, level 50 or whatever. So it's kind of, I think it makes things more realistic if the character continues to have problems with that, but maybe in different ways or lesser, or that flaw is kind of turned into a new kind of flaw. Well, yeah, especially, sorry, ahead. go ahead, Michael. Oh, I was just gonna say, it just makes, it would make it even more interesting where you have the person who supposedly cures their flaw and everyone's, oh, great. And they all applaud and Then that person goes home and you obviously see they don't. <laughs> and it's like, then, then you have this kind of, oh, how sad moment, right? Because it life isn't that way. But yeah, if you're writing realistic fiction, then it probably doesn't just go away overnight. Well, and especially more permanent problems too. So I'm just gonna want to bring this up for a third time. But elementary manages to make that uh, that addiction thing a very omnipresent thing in the throughout the narrative of the entire series, and I, I love that. And I think Emery, you touched on on why I love that very well. Uh, there are certain problems that we end up having to face in real life that uh, there's no uh, amount of fixing we can actually do to make it go away. Um, but uh, it is very um, inspirational in a way to see these characters find ways to live with that uh, and to make their life uh, still a lot brighter based around those sorts of things. And so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, more permanent problems that can be attached to your characters and should be attached to your characters. Um, and, uh, but yeah, making them just kind of vanish rarely, uh, rarely. Well, it, it's interesting because if you take those flaws and you, I mean, essentially they're, they're built on motivation. So with, mm -hmm. with Sherlock Holmes, you have the idea that, yes, he's an addict, but there's a reason. Right. I mean, he can't turn his mind off. So you have right. layers within it and you have, it's all based on the motivation of the characters, which is one of the most important things when you're writing is you have to know that almost at all times for almost every character. And I, I think that was actually also written somewhere in the, these notes, uh, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of the thing you have to face is you have to find the core element, which is the motivation of the character. And once you get there, everything else kind of springs from it. And I'd also point out for in terms of if you do want to have your character grow and heal or at least deal somewhat with their flaws and their struggles um particularly if they're very difficult i would just use the analogy of like physical wounds right if your if your warrior character took a really devastating wound to the leg you need to emphasize that for the rest of his life he walks with a limp or something like that and similarly, if they're dealing with emotional trauma or personality flaws or something like that, and they they feel like they've recovered, there should be, you know, a corresponding scar almost like in quotations, right? There should be some effect. They should feel something or comment on or anything like that, bring attention to whenever that flaw comes up again in the story or used against them or something like that. Just like an echo of what they had to deal with before. Because like everyone just said, people generally don't just get over clean slate of their past traumas or their past flaws and things. So um, Yeah, but that's only if you want to make a realistic character. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> I mean, there are some people who, you know, they just want to gloss over it and get the Superman character out there. And they want to just like yeah. not have any, any, we don't want to go below the surface. So yeah. But, but if you're looking for something realistic, sure. 
Yeah, and this is uh, this is my moment to throw in my soapbox again. Uh, I have to mention this at least once every episode. And so here's here's my one per episode, I guess. Um, it's about knowing your uh, your genre and knowing your audience uh, because we we have spoken you know very derisively uh, against uh, you know creating flat characters, but sometimes there are small exceptions where that. That character is sometimes just what you need in order to tell a tell the story that you want to tell. Um, Superman kind of starts out this way. It's it's he can literally do anything, and his one weakness is kryptonite. And it's it's pretty flat when you really look at it at it on paper. Obviously, over the years they've made the character a lot more uh, fulfilling, uh, based around his classic premise, but. Uh, just because we're bagging on flat characters, I mean, it, knowing your medium is always key uh, to knowing uh, whether or not you can get away with with breaking some of these things that we talk about, like they're hard and fast rules. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I just realized that Superman is the ultimate Mary Sue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because he <laughs> literally, no, he was literally created by uh, two Jewish men from New York who in the beginning of, you know, 1930s. Uh, they were very upset with with Hitler. So, I mean, this was their hero to go and defend them against the world. So it literally was their manifestation of what they wanted to see themselves be and win. So it really was the most Mary Sue. So when you get into the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, suddenly we start putting angst into his character to try and make him more realistic because he was such the ultimate Mary Sue character. And you go too far and end up with Batman versus Superman. <laughs> it should i guess be pointed out that um all this advice will will vary drastically both depending on audience as well as the type of character i think um at least because as like a general rule i'd say you want your main characters to be more nuanced but side characters um oftentimes are completely fine being almost caricatures because you only see as the name implies one side of them right so having like a comedic character who's literally nothing but the laugh track in your story is fine because you're not exploring his story, so to speak. Um, and you just want that character to be relatable and to add a certain element to the scene or to the adventure or what have you. Um, so yeah, it, obviously the level of depth you're going to go into is going to vary on multiple levels. It's interesting how actually historically a lot of times the main character had no character at all. I think I mean, so. If, if, even if you're to read something like Hemingway, I mean, his characters are almost non-existent. They're almost like a vehicle by which the reader just moves through the story. And it's just funny that that has kind of changed as we've gone forward in time. That most people now expect that a main character is going to have a lot of depth, uh, like you were saying. But I'm just saying that it's just weird. If you go back in time, a lot of characters didn't have hardly anything. They were just the vehicle for the reader to move. And I think a lot of people still do that. A lot of people will have their main characters be nothing more than an empty vessel by which the reader can like look through their eyes and experience this world. So, I mean, I guess it has been done successfully. I don't know that in modern times it's it's going to be as well received. A lot of that has particularly moved to the younger generation um, of genre and writing style. So like if you are a potential novelist and you're looking to write for young adults or children or anything, generally those main characters are sort of empty vessels because the idea is you want the reader to self-insert them into the main character's shoes and feel the story as if they were the person in the story, which is usually why main characters of those stories are like young aged because they want the readers to feel like, oh, that's me. 
Right. And and if you're if you start off with your love of writing at a young age, you kind of adopt that character to some reason. So when you go later on, you can kind of accidentally keep using it, not realizing that it's kind of inappropriate for more of an adult story. But a lot of yeah. people find that to be very, you know, almost like comfort food and they keep going with it. If I can hop back to something we were just uh No, you can mention. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, never mind then, guys. Uh Forge and Ford. <laughs> there was uh Chris, you mentioned minor characters. Um and boy, golly. Uh there's an excellent question someone wrote on the notes here. I, I apparently was wrong. Uh the prior notes about Frodo and Sam were from Michael, so uh, awesome points there. Uh, <laughs> these notes are just phenomenal, and I wish we could share them with you guys. Uh, but one of the questions uh, asked on here was, what are some of the tricks in making memorable characters who have less screen time? Um, and I was reminded of this uh, from uh, you bringing it up there briefly, Chris, that we often uh, have our side characters uh, be very flat, or sometimes I'll, I'll often see them given uh, you know one just giant major flaw. And uh, well, I shouldn't say giant major flaw. They're given one flaw that kind of develops their character around that. Uh, and I'm reminded of uh, Harvey Bullock from uh, the Batman animated series. Um, and I am so sorry, comic book fans. I cannot remember if Harvey is in the comics or not. So don't <laughs> don't harangue me uh, for my you know my lack of knowledge here, but. I'm going to stick with the animated series. Uh, Bullock is, uh, Detective Bullock is largely written as a character who just honest to goodness hates that Batman is doing their job for them. Um, but also is willing to begrudgingly accept that help. Um, and that makes him actually a weirdly very memorable side character. Uh, and they even give him his own episode uh, at one point uh, that's built around people trying to uh, to kill him. Uh, and Batman and him having to begrudgingly accept help on that front from Batman in order to save his own life. Uh, and I think that is one of the things that you can do to really make some really interesting side characters, um, especially if that flaw revolves around one of your main characters. Um, it gives you some really cool uh, ways to make those characters stand out in their own right. And at the very least, ha uh, allow them to have moments that matter to the main character and therefore matter to your audience. Well, one more point of caution, uh, if you do make your minor characters interesting, they sometimes take over the story. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Got to be careful there, too. Absolutely. Um, like little easy tricks, um, almost in whatever medium you're making your story in for your minor characters, um, put something that makes them either visually or audibly or something like that distinct from any other character. Um, even if it's just a little thing, it'll help the reader, the players, the person looking at your art, whatever it is, it'll help them remember who this person is every time very quickly. Um, because they're not getting as much screen time and as much um, exposition, there's not going to be as much um, sort of meat for the the reader, the consumer to have like associations with that person in their mind. Um, so if you do something like uh, their silhouette is very particular or um, they always walk with a limp or they have a lisp or like something that defines them, it'll always bring that up um, for the reader immediately. And they'll have that association with the character and it'll make them more memorable, even with just that little bit of detail and trick. So. Chris, don't do that. You don't give away the trade secrets. Now, actually, we'll be much better than we are. That's a really, really good advice. And I would actually extend that to all characters. 
that I, I was actually trying to help someone who was working on a, uh, their first novel. And one of the things I noticed is that all of his races and all of his characters were the same. And I was saying, you, you have to find a way to differentiate them. And one of the ways is, is just a phrase they use over and over again. And this is good because of the fact that everyone does this. This is not a unique or an unusual fact. I'm sure every single one of you can pick out any person you know and think of a phrase that they use to excess. It's just weird, but people do it. And if you can find that phrase or that way of speaking or that hand gesture they always do, and quite frankly, it becomes annoying at times, but also endearing at other times. And if you can do that, you can basically bring reality into a character. And once you do that, that character comes alive. And it's not just for the minor characters, although that is great advice as a way to make a minor character you know, stand out with a very little bit of writing, but also major characters have to have that same kind of treatment because it does really, and you can even make it so you don't have to attribute the line because if they say something that you know comes from that character or they say it in a way or they speak in a way. Like I had some characters that never knew, never used contractions. They just were so formal that one of the rules was they never use contractions. It's a minor thing. Most people didn't notice it, but you would find that they become very stiff when they talk. Yes, that, that's a great point, and I'm glad you made that one. I am personally a fan of the speech pattern thing, and I also have a rule where some of my characters from a particular place and of a social, certain social status don't use contractions. Um, and another thing I've done, which is also very minor, but I think it provides a good example, is um, characters from this one area say will, and characters from this other area say shall. Um, and I think that at least more on like a macro level of characters, that kind of helps group characters in your head as like, okay, so these people are from this area, and these people are from this area, if that matters to your story. I'm guessing you drive your editors crazy. I drive you crazy, Fred. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> um, we I have to check every bit of dialogue and do a global search and replace for wills and shells. Okay, so when I create characters, it doesn't matter if they're the main character or secondary character. I just, I have to kind of make them to real people. So what happens is, as I was mentioning earlier, it's, it's dangerous if you make minor characters because they can take over the story. Case in point, my, my one series that I just finished... Um, I started out with this, it was going to be, you know, a, a love triangle kind of deal, no big deal. It was going to be kind of very classic. And then suddenly the other minor characters got so interesting that the entire story made a right turn and went in a completely different direction because they were so much more interesting than the traditional ones I was building. So, I mean, I love minor characters because you have a tendency to take greater risks with them because you don't have to worry whether the reader is going to, you know, totally latch on and agree with them as, as we spoke earlier, because your main character can often be a vessel for the reader. So you don't want to, you don't want to attribute too many specifics to them because then that leaves the reader out if they don't, you know, match. So I always try to make my, my main characters kind of a little bit bland actually, but my secondaries are so much more interesting because I can do anything with them. Um, but then as I do that, some of them become so fun and interesting in the right that they do end up getting, uh, a lot more spotlighting, and sometimes the main characters have a tendency to fall by the wayside as a result. I've plugged on a number of episodes now different ways to have longevity in your career uh, as a story writer in all forms, and I think this is a another good trick to sort of point people to. 
um, you know, if you are making very interesting and awesome side characters, that's just another opportunity to write another book, another movie, another story, whatever. That's a spinoff of your main story that follows the other side character, and now they're a main character. Um, so it's it can be useful in that regard as long as you're willing to you know have the the extra workload or want more projects in the future. Feel very called out right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as far as minor characters go, I think that in general, a good minor character is one that um, uh, I differentiate between a, a supporting character and a truly minor character, because I view minor characters as kind of like set dressing to just kind of fill in the world a little bit, whereas a supporting character has some significant role in the story. Um and I, think- I have, I actually have the same thing and I literally have it in, I don't know if anyone else uses Scrivener, but I literally have a folder called major characters, minor characters, and then trivial characters. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's, that's the proper breakdown there. Right. Um, so I think what makes a good supporting character then um, is one that, it, well, does that supports the story in some way or the main character provides some kind of, um, like a lens through which to view the main character, maybe from a different perspective without having to go into another point of view, because that's a whole other set of uh, character things as if you're doing a multi-point of view story. Um, and it's just providing perhaps a different perspective without going too deep into a different perspective on the events going on or the plot or the main character. You got to make sure that you, uh, you know the right stuff about these characters too. Um, I think that's a, a fine way of making sure that they don't kind of run off too far is uh, making sure that you're not, uh, this is like, this also kind of tends towards uh, world builders disease where you just kind of end up, you know, constantly writing these things that are off to the side and the fringes that don't really hold any bearing and you end up wasting all your time on that. You kind of want to, don't want to do the same thing to, to, uh, as Michael put it, trivial characters. Um, and uh, Michael, I just want to ask you as, a, as an actual novelist, uh, do you have like a process uh, or like a checklist of sorts or something? I know that a lot of authors do it differently, uh, but uh, like a, a means to go about developing a character. What, what do you mean actual novelist? Are we all novelists? <laughs> Paid, published. Uh, more novelist than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Could you restate that again? I, I was focused on Once you said the, the actual novelist, I was like, what? Okay. What were you saying? You so forgot what's the question, your, didn't you? What's your process um, in delineating the differences between like the minor characters, the side characters, and the trivial ones and whatnot? Oh, oh. Well, and, yeah, uh, just like how, how do you go about developing those? Because again, I, I've heard from various different authors uh, in, in the past couple of years of editing, as well as you know looking up videos and, and interviews and things. Uh, a lot of authors seem to have a very different way they go about making characters. Because, again, you want to be careful not to be bogged down by by filling these characters with useless facts. Like, it's not always important to know every character's, you know, favorite color or whatever. But... Uh, oh, I get what you're saying now. It's like the character sheet concept. I... Right. Right. Is, there, right. is there like a way that you go about uh, making your characters? Uh, or do sure. you, are you a little bit more freeform? Sure. Uh, well, it... it... To be totally honest, no two characters are ever developed the same way. So we'll put that out there. But the second of all, usually a character comes into being 
most often because they have to play a specific role. Now, we're not talking the, the main character of the book usually, uh, but even in that case, yes, I'm going to take the character, I'm going to take the, the conflict, the motivation, and this is the type of character I want to have this result. When you, you, uh, you take the character, you add the motivation, you add the action, and you get the result. These are the, this is a formula you use in order to get what you're looking for. Now, for any other characters on the sides, um, yeah, I mean, I develop them sometimes by taking, uh, as I do with almost all ideas, quite frankly, plots, characters, everything. I take two different, somewhat conflicting concepts and put them together and see what happens. But usually they're serving a purpose in the story. After that, then I look at uh, fleshing them out. And I think this is what you're actually speaking to, which is where I take a character sheet kind of deal. And I actually ask my character some questions. Now, I don't do this every single time, but it does come mm -hmm. in handy. Right. Um, things I ask are, you know, what is a habit that they do that, you know, is kind of annoying to people? What is their favorite hobby when they're not actually doing what they're doing in the story? Uh, these things sometimes don't actually play into the story, but it does give me a much better understanding of their personality. Because if a person is really into fine wines, that's totally different than someone who's into beer. I mean, you just get that, that added bit of flair. You can also take photographs uh, that I find on the internet. And I look at the person and I say, what kind of person is this? I used to do this as an exercise when I would go to something like Starbucks. I would literally sit in Starbucks with a laptop. And as people came in and ordered their drinks, I would look at them and I would describe in my mind who I thought they were, what they did for a living, what kind of personalities they have. And I tried to do it within like three sentences. And that gives you a very quick way to how to define a minor character in a rapid way that is vivid and lasting. So if you can do that, it helps. But when I'm building them, I ask them questions. I ask them what their habits are, what their, what their greatest regret is. And this is an important one, which most, most characters should be asked. What is their life's goal? What is the one thing they would like to do if they could? And that's something that really helps define the character. I mean, if you've ever seen the old movie Romancing the Stone, you have, you have the main character of Michael Douglas, and he wants to have a sailboat. And that defines his whole character. And even if it's a minor character, if you know what it is they're trying to do in the end result of their entire life, it will give some insight. It may not ever even come up, but it gives you as a, as a writer some way of, of giving them sort of a, a, an anchor so that you can work from that point. Uh, but yeah, so I, I actually throw in things of that nature. And sometimes that's all it is. Other times they grow into something really huge and they become a main character. One of it seems like stupid things, but th these are like some little things that I'll do that I find helpful. Um, like everyone knows all the dumb like Facebook personality quizzes and, and things like that. Sometimes I'll just take those and try and answer them from the perspective of characters that I'm working on or using and just seeing what I get if I try to imagine myself as them answering the questions or like take a Myers-Briggs from their perspective or something like that. Because... Just like being an actor, the more you know about a character you're trying to embody, the better you're going to be able to get that out of them. Um, and like you're you're saying, Michael, the different personality quirks, why they may not be important, like the distinction between beer and wine for the story, it's going to give you a sense of who they are. And you're going to be able to portray them more true to that character, in a sense. Um, and so if you get all these stupid answers from the quizzes and the Myers-Briggs and whatnot, it's just going to make that 
that image of the character more solidified in your mind, and it's going to be a little bit more natural to write for them uh, moving forward. And well, so, it's, it's, uh, oh, yeah, there are certain things. There are certain things that are very practical, and these are things that I picked up as as I've gone along. That I've actually have specific questions that are for practical reasons. For example, habits. I mentioned that not because it's just a random thought, but because when you're writing dialogue, oftentimes you want an action tag. And everyone knows what I mean by that, right? Yeah. Okay. And if you have a weird tweak or or habit that this character always does, like I had one character who just, he would take the thread off of their robe and they would wrap it around their finger. And that became a way to always remind you of the character and, and their weird little habits. But also, when you're writing along, you don't want to have an attribution with a said. You can just say, you know, he was doing that thing with this, with this thread again. And it helps you move the story along. And, and little things like that do help. But they add to the character. Plus, they also make the construction of the writing easier. So there are certain things like that that if you just have you know, uh, tweaks or weird ticks that a person has, it helps in the literal writing of the character, which I, I can't overestimate as how good that and easy that helps. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're building these characters, is anything like that, any little detail makes it so much easier to flow through with your writing. So you have to pause and think. But I don't generally come up with, uh, I don't spend a lot of time with each character. But when I get to a point, I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to flesh this guy a little bit more. I'll add to that. I'll, I'll ask him some questions. So it's not, I don't want to make it think that every time you made a character, you have to go through this huge, long, arduous process. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it, it is if you want to do it, but you don't have to until you hit a point where you, it's a good idea. It's like when I world build, if there, there's areas on my map, I have no idea what goes. People have asked me, they go, so what happens in this area? I'm like, I have no idea. I've never focused over there. It's not important to me. One day I will look in that area and I'll tell you what's there. But right now, no, because I don't waste time just building a world for building the world's sake. I build the world for the book's sake. I build the world for the story. And if it doesn't enter into the story, I have no idea. But maybe I will one day. And I, right, I, right. That's why I wish that I could get involved more often in the early early, early processes of people's writing. Uh, Cause sometimes, you know, I only get brought in on the end of things. Uh, but like you get a lot of people who, who are sort of afraid to, to dig into that stuff. And oh, man, I'm glad you brought that point up, Michael. But sometimes it's like, you don't actually need to worry about it uh, until, until you get there. And I feel like people are afraid to uh, on a similar note of discovering places and characters uh, as they're writing. Uh, a lot of people, for some reason, when they're world building, think that they have to have all that stuff down on paper before they start writing. Uh, otherwise, you know, they're going to be disorganized. They're never going to uh, get their thing done. But when they end up falling into that trap, that's on the opposite side, where it's like they spend their entire time world building instead. So yeah, I do the opposite. I actually have, uh, again, using Scrivener on the right hand side, you have a little a notepad you can put in there. Correct. I have something called Safe, and it's just a, it's a notepad uh, file where every time I make something up off the cuff, I have to put it in there so I can file it away later on or I'll forget where it is. <laughs> yeah, like, I've I, been I'm there. Like, I'm like, I need a there. name for a tree or a bush. And I, I'm going to make this up. I have a jungle bush. I have to shove that over there because otherwise I'll forget it's there. And the next time I make up a tree or something, I'm like, oh, what was the name of that thing I made up? So I just have this and I just shuffle them off and I add them to my Bible later. But but to start off with, you know, I mean, all the time I, I come up, Okay, this is going to be a slight segue, but it's not even, <laughs> in, our, it's not even in our no, our notes list. But the process of writing for me, just personal, is I will 
Um, you know, you, I outlined the book to some degree, not extensively. It's more of an, a tentpole concept. And then I will, the day before, I will take a pad and I will just walk around and tell myself what's going to happen in the next chapter. And I cover the highlights, general points. I get an idea of where I'm going to begin, kind of the things I really need to say in that chapter. I jot those down in my notebook. So that the next day when I sit down to write, I can go through that. And I'm never at a loss of what's going to happen. But what usually does happen is I will start off with my general concept. And as I write one sentence, which leads to another, and it begins to create this world of its own, and sometimes it doesn't go the way I planned. And I let it go that way because usually I come up with great ideas. And then that has to then go into the overall outline and everything has to be changed. So this concept of winging it is really important because if you don't wing it, and quite frankly, I was on a, I was on a panel one time with Patrick Rothfuss where I took the opposing point of view, which was probably not good for me because I was really like unknown. But I was just basically <laughs> saying that he was saying that you shouldn't let your, your characters push you around. And I said, well, you know, I'm like, unless, of course, you want to write a contrived novel, because that's what happens. If you don't <laughs> allow your characters to do what a character would naturally do, it's like those those people in a house in Amityville who they're in a haunted house and the walls are bleeding blood. And you're like, why don't you leave? It makes no sense. But the plot says we have to stay. So that's what we're doing. And it's like, if you make a plot that the characters are going to ignore anyway, let them ignore it because that's how the story should evolve. Otherwise, people are going to read this and not believe anything because your characters are not going to seem real. So you have to let things flow. But at the same time, I, I think I think most people understand to some degree, certainly everyone on, on this podcast, because you guys seem very savvy, that everyone who writes a story is a little bit of an outliner and a little bit of a pantser. You have to have a balance at some point that you're comfortable with in order to make a good book. Well, you know, I just want to tell you, you're, you're safe to take pot shots at Rothfuss here. First off, I don't know if he listens to this. It would, it would absolutely, <laughs> it would make my day if he did. <laughs> yeah. Um, but boy, uh, you know, you've, published more books than he has uh, in, in your series. So I don't know if that speaks to anything. I'm sorry if you are listening, Mr. Roth. Uh, I'm just pointing out facts. No offense, man. I love your books. <laughs> oh, he's a very nice person. I just, uh, in that one instance, I, so felt I was, I was so going out on a limb. I was going out on a limb because I'm in a, a room full of people and we're on a panel together. And he just, he said something. I'm like, I really have to take the opposing point of view here, but this seems really stupid, but hey, I'm going to do it anyway. I ended up getting a laugh, so. Well, one thing I think Chris might have some expertise in that I also wanted to touch on since I know a lot of um, RPG world builders listen to this is your RPG character is not the chosen one of their own story. You're playing with a group of people and all of you need to be, you know, contributed, contributing equally to what's going on right and that's that's more advice for the the player which they're usually the ones who you first think of when you're like oh well we need to give some advice on crafting um compelling characters right because they want to play a com compelling main character um but it's also something you need to think about if you are the dungeon master or the game master or whatever um, when you're making other characters in the world also um, and when you're crafting the story in which your players will participate in, um, because you have to remember, okay, there's essentially four main characters. I can't give any one of them the spotlight permanently. I need to make sure I'm going to highlight different things about each character. Um, and it's really 
a an elaborate juggling game um because you really need to be able to swap but then the players for for those of you who are players you also need to help your dungeon master in this um don't try to hog all of the spotlight as well um you just just need to be aware that it is not a story about you it is a story about us and so all of us need to be in it one of the problems i always had when i was a dungeon master was reminding myself that i'm not supposed to win yeah <laughs> it's really hard to do i mean you're 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 playing a game where your side against their side but you're like but i have to lose and i would often forget that that's a, that's actually a really fascinating notion i've never thought of yeah, it kind of yeah, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> See, the way I get around it is usually I try to go into it with the perspective of it's not, I'm not playing the enemies in the sense that I want them to win against the players, is I'm trying to weave an interesting story. And if I want to see the end of it, I need the players to win. Um, and so it's like you're, you want to read a book that you're helping you're helping to write and you're only going to see the end of it if you don't you know end the book on chapter four you're you're clearly not as argumentative as i am (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about that i mean when when i want to get into this it's like no no i win because i did this and they know we cast this spell i'm like yeah that doesn't matter because i can do this and it's like so it becomes this this thing that i built this great i I don't know how how old you are if you can remember dungeon keeper as a computer Mm -hmm. game Yep, I love that. Oh, and, the, yeah. and the concept that you build this dungeon and the intent is to prevent, you know, the good characters from coming in. And it's it's like you get upset, like, no, no, they shouldn't be able to get there. You're, you're like the ultimate evil character that you don't want the good guys to win. So it's like when I used to do dungeons, I had to keep in the back of my head. It's like, you know, you, you're, you're, you're Caesar or you're a general walking through, you know, Rome and they have that person whispering in your ears saying you're only a man you're only a man you have to remind yourself you can't win it's like oh damn it that's right they have to win or else they're going to hate this so this is actually a useful thing that reminded me of some advice i give um one of the things because you do want to make compelling villains also when you're the dungeon master right and so when you are playing them or thinking about their lair or their plot, you do have to go into it with the mindset of, I want to win. Because that's what that character is thinking. They're not thinking, oh, I want to be a suitable challenge for these adventurers who are coming right. my way. They're like, no, I want to wipe the floor with these people as easily as possible. So one of the most important things I tend to tell DMs when they're thinking about designing their villain and whatnot come up with their resources before you do any plotting. Um, because one of the things that can often happen, at least with my my younger um, audience, so I don't know how often this happens with slightly more experienced people, is the if you embody the idea of, oh no, I want to win, you'll just like keep ramping it up and then essentially make a dungeon that's impossible for their players to beat, right? But if you go in understanding the limitations on this villain's resources, you'll know the parameters that you can work with, but still try to use them to the fullest extent of, I want to win. And you'll end up just making a very realistic and useful challenge given the power level of your villain, um, as opposed to just, now you can't ever escape. (laughs) And that's exactly how you write a novel. Absolute silence. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you do the same thing. You have to create finite 
I mean, because the thing that I used to hate, I mean, okay, so I grew up kind of in the 70s and used to have these horrible uh, horror movies, you know, like Damien and Rosemary's Baby. And in these movies, the good guys always lost. And that's what I grew up with. And that was very disappointing for me. And I'm like, that that's not fair that in every single movie, the good guys lose. So it was very, you know, I found that very frustrating. So I wanted to make sure that the good guys, you know, are limited just like the bad guys are and vice versa because in so many situations and you've seen this i'm sure in many movies and books where the bad guys can they never fail everything they do works like clockwork there's no error whatsoever talk about mary sue i mean you have evil characters that nothing ever goes wrong it's perfect and then suddenly at the end of the book they can do nothing right and the good guys win and it makes no sense because yeah. it's just this absurd concept so what you have to do is what you just said. You have to have a limitation to the bad guys and a limitation to the good guys and just make it so that when you come together, the good guys are just a little bit better than the bad guys unless you're being a jerk and you're being Joe Abercrombie. But something like that would happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, one of the interesting things that uh, Chris said that I'm now like, I don't know, like weirdly questioning my love of James Bond uh, <laughs> over is you saying – that you should think about, and I know you're saying this more in an RPG aspect than anything else, but you said uh, make sure that you know your your characters slash villains uh, resources before you build them. And now I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, because if you don't, then you end up with like the infinite army of henchmen problem that I yeah. think in a weird way plagues most Bond villains. They literally have hundreds of dudes they've thrown at this guy. And you're like, okay, if I was hired by this man to, you know, be, be the dude to kill James Bond, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, he's already killed 120 of our guys. I think I'm going to peace out now. Um, but on top of that, too, like, where are they? How are they paying for all these people? Where are they finding these people? Um, <laughs> but, like, this is, I don't know. This is, like, making it's me like, question have, have, that. Have you, ever re have you ever read John Scalzi's Red Shirts? No. Uh, it just real quick, it, it's the concept of if you were the red shirt in a Star Trek story. In a Star Trek, right, yeah. Right, and, <laughs> and he treats it from that point of view. And what you're saying is that imagine if you were just one of the henchmen in a, in a Bonds movie. You'd be like, wait a minute, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> yeah, let me just lay here and pretend I got shot. This is not a good idea. Yeah, there's a story I mean, here. It somewhere. would actually make a pretty good novel when you think about it. Yeah. Well, and so like, but like, this is, these are the sorts of like things that you should think about when you're, when you're writing or when you're reading or watching something too, because this is also a well for uh, really interesting character ideas too, now that I'm randomly thinking about it. Uh, if you've never seen Big Trouble in Little China, uh, you should absolutely go see it. Uh, understanding with a caveat that the first three minutes of that movie are absolutely not canon. Um, <laughs> because... Uh, some background on this because I'm pretty sure we have a lot of young listeners who have never even heard of this movie. Um, basically, the original premise when they wrote the the movie was let's make a movie that's about the sidekick in a uh, in a like a modern Chinese kung fu flick. Um, and uh, when they made the movie, got everything done. They sent it off to, uh, I don't even remember who distributed it. They're like, uh, yeah, no, this is not going to work. Uh, we don't think people are going to get it. We think this is a little too highbrow in a way. Uh, and so they tacked on this thing in the first three minutes of the movie that changed Val Kilmer's character into uh, 
into a uh or i'm sorry kurt russell's character into I, was a, say, I don't think val Cameron was in that but i was I, you had me thinking oh my gosh audio editors please save me uh i meant to say kurt <laughs> russell <laughs> uh they turned kurt russell's character though into the main character instead of the sidekick by tacking on this thing at the beginning of the movie uh, for three minutes where one of the uh, other characters in the film talks about how they never would have done what they did if it weren't for his character. And you, and it's like, it changes the whole mood of the movie because of that. Um, but man, it breaks my heart to see that happen though, knowing what that movie was really supposed to be. Uh, yeah. Because Kurt Russell's character just struggles through the whole thing to be of any use uh, for most of it. Um, and so it, it also doesn't quite fit with that first three minutes of the movie. Um, but like, yeah, there's so many interesting character ideas out there if you if you really drum up those sorts of things. Um, and it, it's just really fascinating the things that you can learn uh, by uh, looking into the genres and uh, things that you love, but from very unorthodox angles. So I, I do have one caveat with the with the outline that we were given. It's number seven. Make sure you're doing research. And the, the caveat I have is um, you don't, you lose bows, you don't shoot them. Does anyone know why? Why I would have a problem with it? It's because the word shoot is not related to guns. It actually predates by, it goes back to 900 AD in to go fast like shooting the rapids it means to propel something quickly so technically hmm. shooting an arrow is perfectly fine although you would never shoot a bow because that would mean you whipped your bow at someone <laughs> but technically you don't shoot a gun either you shoot a bullet just 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 one of those one of the things to think about well and see like you know even even though this is sort of ingested based on you know just a kind of an offline on our on our notes section here i love this though because this is exactly the sort of thing though, that i think we're trying to get at with this point uh for listeners knowledge our, our uh one of our last untouched points is about uh make sure you're doing research uh on things so that you can make sure that your uh your characters sound competent about the things that they know um, and I love that you bring this up because this is something that does happen a lot. Um, but but I should it, say that this is actually a problem because what I just said would be wrong. It's technically correct what I just said, but you're right. Most readers, when reading that, would say they would poo poo it and say, "Oh, you don't shoot an arrow because that's a gun." Right. The preconceived notion by most readers would make it appear wrong, even though it's actually a liability on the reader's part. Right. They did not do their research to know that there's nothing wrong with the word shoot. So you, uh, this goes back to a great story that my, my wife once uh, corrected me on, in which I wrote a short story in which a woman brings a small dog into the waiting room of an operating room in a hospital. And she looked at me and she says, okay, this is ridiculous. No one, you, you can't bring a dog into the waiting room outside of a hospital room, uh, uh, not, literally an operating room. And I said, but when you were having your back operated on, I sat in an operating room waiting room and I wrote down a description of the room to keep my mind off the fact that my wife was being operated on. And I wrote down what was going on and a woman had a dog in a purse. And she looked at me and she said, okay, I'm not disputing the fact that it happened, but no one would believe it. 
And the difference between reality and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. Huh. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's weirdly true. Right, and I think th this isn't really related to characters, but I think that's especially true of world building, is that it has to make sense, at least with itself and the rules that you establish. And I think it's kind of the same thing with characters, too. If you establish that a particular character does or says something or has some sort of knowledge, it has to make sense that they have that knowledge or do that thing. Like, there has to be a reason for it, even though sometimes people just do things or there's not really a sensical reason behind it. Yeah, I was talking with the fellow just uh, recently who was doing a their first novel and they let me read it and unfortunately it, it is not it's set in present day so it's not like a, a an invented world but i said basically you don't have any world building and they thought it was kind of strange i said because what world building can be regardless of when it is set or where it is set it's the rules by which you have to stay consistent with and if you don't do that then the reader will find you to be an inconsistent author and they, they won't believe you anymore and then everything falls apart. So you have to actually establish rules and then stick to them. That's especially important when you come to magic. We've gotten out of an episode recently talking about uh, magic and I think that's something that a lot of people don't uh, uh, don't quite like get when they think about the difference between hard and soft magic systems and things like that. But like there should almost always be a set of rules in there. And yeah, it's super important to make sure that you're playing by those rules. Uh, this is kind of funny because we're, we're now going back to talking about rules as being a sort of a hard and fast thing, uh, but in a different context now. So there are some that you do have to play by, some that you don't, and some that you can play fast and loose with. Um, but making sure that your world and especially your characters in that world, uh, interacting with that world, are consistent with the rules that you've set in place absolutely is 100% necessary and, and very important. Yeah, I, I think our general message is that uh, you can do anything you want, and what you're listening to right now means nothing. So don't don't even pay attention to us because we have no. <laughs> <laughs> we That's actually made this podcast so that we could figure out how everything works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this this podcast is just so that we can hear ourselves talk later on and think we're cool. I mean, I, I, that's why exactly, I exactly. I'm I'm with you there, Michael. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons. Like, whenever I say anything on here, I tend to say, "Oh, this is like advice or whatever, not like rules," you know. Because at the end of the day, if if there is an audience that thinks your stuff is good and you also enjoyed making it, then it was good. It's kind of like when Michael was saying earlier, it, it's essentially an art, right? So it's not like there are objective rules to art. Um, and, and similarly, the advice that you shouldn't break your rules is just that. It's advice. And sometimes when you do break your rules, you can do it in a way that still works and still is enjoyable and kind of doesn't break the story, right? Um, and then, and just as some advice, if you're going to do that, um, you usually want to make a sort of connecting reason, even if it's just like a super simple one. So like Emery's example, um, way back when, when she said um, one region of her characters all say shall and the other say will. Um, and now there's a character who says shall who's not from that area. And then you're like, wait, wait, wait that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then that immediately creates tension for the reader. They're like, okay, well, why does this person say shall? And then you, as the writer, need to come up with a reason, even if it's as simple as, oh, that, well, they were adopted and they were raised in the other area. Um, but it at least gives you like a, a connector, right? You've, you've figured out a way to square the circle of, well, I broke that rule, even though I established earlier as a rule. Sorry. So uh, segue into 
Michael more of his work, um, where can we find your books and where should we find you if we want to hear like your Twitter or something like that? Okay. Uh, actually, I'm terrible at this. Um, unfortunately, I would like to preface by saying that. So I've, I've been to conventions and my publishers have done this for me. I've been on panels. And if you've ever been to a convention or, or seen authors on panels, they put their books in front of them and they stand them up so everyone knows that this is the book they're hawking. And I never brought mine. My, <laughs> my, my publishers hated me because I would never bring my book because no one would know what to buy because I hate plugging myself. I, I don't like helping authors and taking advantage of it. But that said, my wife will kill me <laughs> if I don't do something because she's my publicist. So um, you, you can find me at, uh, let's see, uh, author.sullivan on Twitter. And if you want to look at me on my website, it's at ryera.com. And that's spelled R-I-Y-R. Well, no, no, I can't actually do it. See, this is one of those things where you do it by rote. So it's, so it's R-I-Y-R-I-A.com. And the weird, it's a weird word because, because it's part of my writing. Uh, it's the title of one of my characters. So if you can uh, go there, that's where you'll find my stuff. And the only plug I would give is the fact that I'm coming out with a new book called Nolan in next year, uh, fairly soon. All right. So uh, Red, Chris, do you guys want to give some like final thoughts, your own plugs, uh, brief advice that we didn't cover that you just really want to get out? No, yeah. Just uh, be passionate about what you do. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your characters and and it's going to speak volumes for you when you, when you do get down to writing and stuff like that. Yeah. I think, um, all the, the super important advice, not rules uh, that I can think of off the top of my head has been discussed at length as well as some bonus ones that you might've not expected. So I'm quite happy with the conversation overall. This is also just a reminder for you listeners too. We'd love to hear your questions about compelling characters, writing advice and stuff like that. You can hit us up at Twitter. Uh, we are at WB underscore mag. I personally am at Hikitsune underscore red. Uh, if you've got any excellent questions and stuff you want to ask us, please post them there. Uh, it helps inform us what sort of topics we should be covering for you guys. So. All right, and I'll round things off. I, again, am Emery Glass. I have a, a novelette coming out in an anthology this um, October. So if you're interested in cannibalistic vampire spirits, <laughs> perhaps that's something you want to pick up. Um, it'll be in the Visions of Darkness anthology by Kyanite Publishing. And you can find me on Twitter at the Chroma Books. Chroma is spelled C-H-R-O-M-A. And yeah, I think that's all we've got. So thank you guys for listening and come back for the next one. You've been listening to the World Casting Podcast, an affiliate production of World Building Magazine. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can check out our website at worldbuildingmagazine.com, where you can also find links to all of our social media and our Discord server. This episode was edited by Jaron J. Petty. <laughs>